I'm Marissa. And I'm Liza. And this is the Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. And finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. We need like an EDM remix of the um, podcast intro. I wonder if I could make one. I feel like you could. And like the beat drops like halfway through the quote. You yes. know what I mean? Like when they do like David Guetta type beat, like, you know. <laughs> I do know. You know exactly what I mean. This is a great idea. Um, I'm going to start working on it. Okay, cool. So next episode, everybody look out for the EDM remix of the Little Sleep Much Reading theme song. For uh, Neil Gaiman. <laughs> yes, for our Neil Gaiman week. And Neil Gaiman is coming. He's our special guest. He's he's the one remixing the song. Oh my God, bro. It's like when you get like a famous singer to like be featured on like your remix. Like it'll be like, it's like a Vici song, but it's like Selena Gomez singing. Yes. Like it's our song, but it's Neil Gaiman singing. What more could we want? There's nothing else. That is the only thing. What is the third thing? Have we t- we talked about, was that me and Lexi or was that me and you? Talk about when in the Kelly Link story, there's like that line that's like, what is the third thing? And one time in class, I guess Samantha Hunt was like, what is the third thing? And everybody was like, holy shit, what is the third thing? That could have been me and you, but I just feel like I talk about that part so much. Right. That it also could just have been anyone. You and anybody it make it checks out for all three of us that we would be hooked on that on that phrase. That is my quote for my thesis. Right. My my epigraph. Right. What is the third thing, Marissa? What is the third thing? That's yo. Everybody, shout out to Kelly Link. Everybody, go buy Magic for Beginners. But don't you think not telling us the third thing was also telling us the third thing? Are you shitting my dick? <laughs> <laughs> Should we? introduce this week's episode we could do that this week we're doing native american heritage week because it is native american heritage month i'm going to be talking about the book i'm i don't know if it's just popular on book talk right now or if it's just popular everywhere but i'm talking about the only good indians by stephen graham jones and i'm talking about savage conversations by leanne howe which is also relatively new. It's from 2019. We'll take this moment to say, you're listening to this on the fourth day of Native American Heritage Month. So you better be supporting Native American authors, writers, storytellers, artists, booksellers, librarians, and picking up some Native American stories, new or old, and reading them and promoting them and continuing to support them all year, and perhaps donating to organizations that support Native American artists or Native American causes in general. Um, Yeah, just like celebrate, celebrate Native storytellers, please, please, please. Now that we said that and everybody's going to go buy a book right after they listen to this episode, just we wanted to give like a little bit of background before we jump into our book reviews. So let's get into it. Native American Heritage Month describes a celebration of heritage for indigenous people living in what is presently referred to as the United States of America. So this largely refers to a celebration of culture of American Indian and Alaska Natives. Um, I believe that other areas of the world perhaps have their own Indigenous Heritage Month or Indigenous Peoples Days. I think often when we, and by that we is not a fully collective we, it's mostly like a we like in the um, American public school system, people who came from that background. When we think about it, we're thinking of um, First Nations people of Turtle Island, which is North and Central America, But it's important to recognize that there are indigenous people everywhere, Latin America, Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Scandinavia, the Middle East, you name it. So just because this is Native American Heritage Month here in the U.S. doesn't mean that, you know, that's 
we decided to, for Native American Heritage Month, we decided to only read books from Native authors with tribal heritage in this area of the world. But that is not to say that there's not Indigenous stories and storytellers from all over the world. Um, so if you look up like lists of Indigenous books and authors, make sure to check out other places too. There's one list that we do have on our Twitter, and I, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name right now, but we can put it in the meeting notes and it was like a Maori novel and I was really interested in that um, but because this is Native American Heritage Month we decided to pick two authors from tribes in this area of the world and with that I kind of want to ask Marissa I looked this up but do you know what land you are on in Buffalo? I feel like I will once you say it yeah but like off the top of my head no yeah so I looked it up and it says that Buffalo is Seneca land. Makes sense. We have the Seneca Niagara Casino. Right. There you go. And then New York City, where I am, is Lenape land. And you can, we'll put this in the meeting notes as well. There's like this number that you can text and you text your area code and you can find out which stolen land you are like currently occupying. And it's really interesting, too, because that could give you like a better feel for like there are so many different ways to observe Native American Heritage Month. But one, of course, is, you know, donating to communities. And sometimes it's not possible to donate to the community whose land you are on because they're not really around anymore. But other times there is that possibility. So we'll put it in the meeting notes. I It's an article from Hyperallergic. Um, which is a fun publication anyway. And yeah, it's a, it's a number and you text your zip code to it and it tells you which Native territories you're occupying. Now that we have a little bit of background on Native American Heritage Month, um, we did want to get into a little bit of background on Native American literatures before we dive into both of our book reviews. So preface this by saying Native American literature is not a monolith. You can't really just say, you know, this is the background of Native American literature, storytelling, etc. Therefore, it is often described as literatures, plural, Native American literatures, because each tribe, nation will have its own traits, styles, formats, stories. You simply cannot group them all together. That being said, there are some overlaps in um, traditions and themes, and even sometimes you'll see from different areas of uh, one region or even the world, some overlap in folklore and creation myths. You'll be able to find like similarities between those things. But I just want to say like, it's we'll be referring to it in this next kind of few minutes as Native American literatures, because it would just not be fair or correct to say, this is what Native American literature looks like. And I wanted also, while we're on this note, to take a moment to address oral storytelling, um, because we also mentioned last week that oftentimes in literature firsts, I put air quotes around firsts, like the first ghost story, for example, only refers to the first time someone, usually a white person, colonizer, writes it down, but that's just not true. Oral stories are stories. They have been around literally for millennia and don't let anybody tell you otherwise uh, and that is part of the reason why protecting stories that are passed down orally protecting native elders is so important because these are how stories histories traditions languages which are very important are passed down so in terms of looking back on native american stories poems songs chants a lot of these were often passed down orally but of course there were and are native american literatures that were written um, as well as early literatures to i found um, this was not something i knew there was like a term for but what was described as a native american renaissance in the 60s and 80s um, which included like a boom of essays, histories, fiction, poetry by Native American authors. And that brings us all the way up to today as well with, um, we have Pulitzer Prize winner, Louise Erdrich, who is Ojibwe and Chippewa, whose stories often center Native people. We have Tommy Orange, who is Cheyenne and Arapaho, and his novel, They're There, Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, we have poets like Lady Long Soldier with her collection, Whereas, and she is Oglala Lakota. So, yeah, when you're looking for books 
to read by native authors. There are literally so many. I think we also have one on our Twitter that had like 236 books. And I was like, I literally like want to read all of these books. So countless, countless contemporary native authors, like I said, dating back to the native literature renaissance, in the in in the mid 20th century and dating back even further and then you know the last thing i wanted to touch on in terms of native american literatures was themes as we said it is not a monolith but in terms of native native writers telling stories today we've noticed and you'll see kind of in discourse as well that there's a lot of work uh, and i think this kind of ties into i think this might tie into marissa's story um, surrounding folk tales and traditions like classic kind of myths surrounding um, there's a lot of themes surrounding reservations and reservation life um, and what it means to live on a reservation now you know I think it came into the consciousness of a lot of non-native folks how detrimental residential schools were and so, you know, nonfiction that brings to light things like that. Another theme that you will notice is trauma and healing and also telling history and telling about culture and traditions. Um, and I think the history bit ties into my book for sure about how history was not written down truthfully. And so Native storytellers are saying, this is what really happened. I'll tell you how it happened because a lot of the time we did not hear, uh, we were not told the truth. The settlers do not like to tell the truth. So do you have any other thoughts on that, Marissa? A couple things actually. So when you're talking about um, Native American literatures, it made me think of this one part in my book. I don't remember exactly the context that it happened, but I think, I think that it was, one of the main characters who is native is he works at the post office and this other girl starts to work there and she's also native. And it's like everyone at work sort of lumps them together because they're both native. And he's, he makes a comment like they don't even realize that like he's Blackfoot and she's Crow. And it just made me think that like, I think that we think of Native Americans and we're like, oh, okay, Native American. There, there wasn't, countries or states or things like that these people often didn't have uh sometimes weren't even like aware of each other and for us to just like lump them all together is very interesting to me I don't know whoever thought that that was like the way to talk about them or whatever is I don't know it's that's strange it makes no Um, sense because like also like this region of the world I'll just refer to it as like Turtle Island for right now, but like it's so vast. Like why the fuck would the people in the Pacific Northwest be the same as the people in Southern, what is now Florida? Like what? Like that. Right. Right. Makes no sense. Because we've always grown up this way. It's like, we don't even think about it. We're just like, oh yeah, Native Americans. And then you sit there for a second and you're like, hold the phone like that just makes no sense it's like too it's the fault of the settlers in so many ways but also even later you know colonization continued when uh western films came out um and they were like here's what a native american looks like and it was just like a gross misrepresentation stereotype and then when was that you know when were westerns big like 1930s maybe yeah like through the like 80s and so then you had a whole generation of people who were like oh yeah like that's what this kind of person looks like Like, what (laughs) it's it's silly of us very silly also I was wondering do like if you know because you might not know do you know or could you think of what the first book that you read by a Native American author is or was? That's a really, really good question because I do not think that I was presented with stories by Native authors maybe ever 
And so the first, the first one that I can recall, this is un- literally unfortunate. Like that, it took me, it took me this long and this many years in school for somebody to say, here you go, um, was the Red Convertible short story by Louise Erdrich. So that was 2017. The only other thing I can think of is there's that, I'm so sorry, the name, maybe you can grab it from my head, but like the, um, it was like a YA book, The True Stories of a Part-Time Indian. But I'm not, no, I'm not sure if that author is, I hope he's native. Let me look it up. Um, while I do that, what was yours? I, I don't know why this is a thing, but in Catholic schools, a lot of our ELA books were from public schools. A lot of the like many stories in there, I'm, I remember being, I remember being, I'm pretty sure quite a few written by Native Americans, but I cannot, don't remember who they were or what the stories were even called. Um, But I will say in fifth grade, I read, and before people get mad, I'm going to expand on this. I read Walk Two Moons by Sharon Creech, I believe her name is. I loved the book. It was so good. But I was just thinking about her while we were talking about reading these books and everything. So over the weekend, I looked her up. Okay, so she claims that her cousin says that they are Native, but like... It's like, right. It's not as if she like... So she was telling Native stories, but she didn't necessarily grow up in Native culture, in her tribal or whatever, wherever tribe she said she was from. She didn't grow up in that tribal culture. Right. She literally says her cousin said that they were Native. Okay. And so she like embraced that. Right. And read a whole bunch of, uh, read a whole bunch about traditions and myths and things like that. And so I was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. But it makes me so sad because I, I mean, I don't know. Being 22 years old now and having read Walk Two Moons when I was 10, I'm like, is right. that, but is, is it like actually a good book? I don't know. Right, right. I looked it up, by the way, and the book is The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. And the author, Sherman Alexi, is Spokane native. So there you go on that. Um, I guess, though, maybe don't read that book because he is um, has been me tooed. Um, Sir. So perhaps don't read that. That was just a book that popped into my head. I'm sure you've seen it, Marissa. It's like the cover is very recognizable. It's is like it orange. A, yeah. At least when we were younger. Um, it's older it's from it's not like something the kids are reading today but it has little like action figures on it like kind of like the like um western like almost like you remember those like little military green guys yes I remember sometimes they would have like western ones too the yeah the cowboys yeah yeah the, it has those yeah. on the cover so yeah yeah but I mean I red convertible is literally the first thing that pops into my head Something else that we can maybe talk a little bit about is, A, you said that your book deals a little bit with how history was not correct. Mm -hmm. And I think that history continues to be marked down incorrectly. Yes. And that's something that comes up a lot in my book, which I will touch upon. And also something that is all the hype right now it seems is Jordan Peele movies so good um us amazing get out amazing but I think the thing that we don't always talk about when it comes to them is like what kind of horror that actually is Mm -hmm. and I tried to I was thinking a lot about that about you know like what kind of horror is Jordan Peele horror because it is something very different it is it's not 
it's not as straightforward as body horror. It's not as straightforward as slasher. It is something very different. It's almost like social horror, maybe, or like cultural horror, something like that. I think it leans more on social, though. My favorite thing ever said, I think actually, by any maker, was when Jordan Peele said, Get Out is a documentary. Like, holy shit. (laughs) So yeah, like, I think social horror is a really good way to put it. He also said... So I was thinking, like, what is his horror doing? And he said it deals with, quote, social demons, which I loved that. I was also thinking about the idea of, like, satire, but horror. You know what I mean? Like, instead of comedy, instead of it being funny, it's scary, but it's social critiquing. But then I was like, is that just all horror? But in social horror, it's like... The society is the evil or the villain in the story or even what society has made you think. So that's something that's really interesting. On the back of my book, it literally says from the Jordan Peele of horror literature. And that's how they refer to Stephen Graham Jones. And that's what really made me kind of think like, okay, so what does that mean? And what is Jordan Peele doing? Right. So if people are into movies such as Get Out and Us and Jordan Peele type uh, social horror, I think reading Native American horror is something that you should be doing. There's a lot of questions on identity, on old traditions versus modern living, Um, what you should be or who you think that you are, who people think you are, stereotypes, what you're trying to be. There's all these really interesting things happening in my book that I'm sure is scattered throughout social literature. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to have that in mind while you're watching like a Jordan Peele film. That reminds me too, is that like, again, well, I'm just going to say we should put the same list in the, that's on our Twitter in the um, description, but there's a dystopian, a Native American dystopian series that I would very much like to read and dystopia. Oh, also kind of like, I think Louise Erdrich's future home of the living God is dystopian too. And dystopian also often feels it is socially motive like driven, but there's like is a there is a line between horror and dystopia. Cause like I don't know, I was thinking like Squid Game and Black Mirror. They're making a social commentary, but it is not horror. It is dystopian fiction. Whereas there is this book that we'll put in a description that is like a dystopian and then Louise Erdrich. But like, yeah, they're like different. They're two different things. Dystopian almost feels post whatever to me. Right. Like dystopian feels like here's the future that you have to avoid. Whereas the horror addresses the now. Right. A get out wasn't taking place in the future. No. The only good Indians doesn't take place in the future. You can't call these books dystopians. Right. You, you call them horror because they're, they're what is happening. Right. What has happened. It's all, that's why it's scarier, too, because it is happening. Whereas the dystopias are fake. The thing is, though, here's something interesting. Future Home of the Living God, Louise Erdrich. I think it's a climate apocalypse. Do we call climate apocalypses an apocalypse or a dystopia? Because it feels like a dystopia because it's like your fault, society's fault, but it's still an apocalypse. Whereas like Hunger Games isn't an apocalypse, it's just a dystopia. This has nothing to do with shit about shit, but I just was thinking about it. I like to think about it. I like to know. So there is eco-horror. So at what point, so then is, are there like, subsections of eco-horror and one's more apocalyptic one's more dystopian there must be we should have an eco-horror week should i start talking about savage conversations by leanne howe 
Um, I think you should, but wait, I want to see the cover. Hold it up. It's got Abe Lincoln on it. That which is why I said Lincoln. Why, why I said speaking of colonizers, there's, there's <laughs> fucking Abe. Yeah, this cover is really cool. Yeah, what a horrible man. And we like there's a whole ass monument of him in Washington, DC. He's on the penny, he's on the five dollar bill. Um, and of course he ended, you know ended slavery in a way but he did really not do that and he also was like wanting he was like he did not like black people like he like he he like said he was like and will like send them away like he was like he wasn't trying to free people he was trying to end slavery but he wasn't trying to like i don't know and 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 he becomes even more of a complex character um even though he's not in this book in this book so for this episode i read savage conversations by leanne howe and leanne howe is choctaw and if you're listening to this and you live in oklahoma so she's choctaw oklahoma but if you live in oklahoma alabama mississippi area depending on which part of that state you live in you are on stolen Choctaw land. Um, Howe is a professor of writing, English, American Indian studies. She is a writer, playwright, poet, um, and primarily tells Native American stories. Her first story was called Shell Shaker, and it came out in 2001 about the murder of Choctaw political leaders. And her most recent book is Savage Conversations, which came out in 2019 from coffee house press so from a small press so if you buy this book because literally honestly also if you don't buy this book after i tell you about this right now i'm gonna be actually pissed um because there's absolutely no reason not to buy it and or read it but when you do buy it you should buy it right from coffee house press because they're a small press or an indie bookstore or an indigenous owned bookstore let's get into it a summary of savage conversations This book is set up as a play. It begins with the story, which is basically the background, um, which I'll get into in a minute. But there's there's only three characters in this book. Mary Todd Lincoln, the Savage Indian, and the rope. And I want to read the ropes. There's a description of all three of them at the beginning, like any play. Um, But I'm going to read the rope's description because it's very interesting. Both a man and the image of a hangman's noose used in the largest mass execution in United States history. The rope eavesdrops on Mary and the savage Indians conversations. He sometimes twirls around the room like a dancer. What? I'm I'm just literally obsessed with this book. And so the mass murder, mass execution that was being described there with the description of the rope is in a way the main background of this book. This book takes place based in truth in the late 1800s when Mary Todd Lincoln was addicted to opiates and tried for uh, insanity in a Chicago court. And um, she was in a mental institution where, where she was housed after her husband's death. This is all true. Um, and she claimed she had visions of a savage Indian who would scalp her. And how takes this bit of history and weaves in another true occurrence, telling history the way that it actually was about an event in which Lincoln called for and held the mass execution of 38 Native Americans of the Dakota Nation the day after Christmas in 1862. To this day, this is the biggest mass execution there has ever been in the United States which I was not aware of before reading this book, which like, you know, I'll get into that a little bit later. But like we said, you know, telling history the way that it actually was instead of the revisionist history we were often presented with. But the book features conversations between the Dakota man um, and Mary Todd Lincoln uh, with interjections by the rope, 
they discuss this execution. They discuss what happened to the Dakota people, how Native Americans and people of color are still being treated today. Uh, Lincoln's affair with another woman, which I actually didn't know about either. Mary Todd's insanity, um, their marriage, her children, and some of the horrible things she did to them, and a number of other themes. So uh, let's get into the chart. For readability, I gave this book an 8.5. I finished this book. Let's look at exactly how long it is. It is 104 pages. I finished this book in under an hour. I assume that's how long maybe it would be if it were to be acted out as a play. Although I imagine there would be like more movement. So maybe it would be longer. But either way, you do not put this book down. You just don't do it. It's it's not easy to read based on its themes, but it's easy to read in terms of its pacing, writing, format. And the only reason I don't wouldn't put it like any higher than 8.5 is because it wasn't playing on my mind when I wasn't reading it because I never stopped reading it. I read it in one sitting, but it was playing on my mind after the fact for sure. And that's why I'm like, I'm just literally going to be mad at this point if people don't go by and read this book because it's an hour out of your day. And this is one of the coolest books I have ever read and is definitely probably my top three for 2021. Like, I will be surprised if I need or if I read another book between now and January 1st that somehow like knocks this out of top three. Um, so there you go. Now you will be going and buying it right after this. But uh, to get into uh, the meat of it, language and style, I also gave this book an 8.5. I thought the language in this book was amazing. The dialogue Um, because it is largely dialogue because it is set up as a play, I thought was incredible. Um, And rather than kind of trying to describe it, I think I'm actually just going to read a few passages so that you get the picture. This is dialogue from Savage Indian. I know isolation, silence, the slow descent downward, lost somewhere in midair, Gar woman, I have crippling doubts, but I surrender nothing, not even death. He looks at their surroundings. I no longer have to worry. That doesn't mean I am not suspicious of the living. They enter my dreams uninvited. In Dakota land, they are pulling down the last of our dead. Bodies of men and women hanged by a rope of lies. When I was a human being, I would sing the air thick with Dakota songs. December 26, 1862. In 150 years, the citizens of Mankato will shiver, asking why their ancestors hanged 38 Dakota Indians over a handful of hen's eggs. When I look at your world, I weep, because in the end, even your life is a captivity account. Maybe we are all captives and one sort of the other. He stops and drinks water from her china teacup. Things like that. It is a lot of back and forth between the characters, but, you know, sometimes there'll be kind of more soliloquy or monologue moment. The rope is insane. I'll get to this later too, but this character, here's a passage that is just one scene titled The Rope Searches for His Legacy, August 1875. And then it has the address of the um, sanitarium, The Rope. I know the secret thrill of taut, tying up, tying down, binding tight, strapping hard, lashing not to payload for kicks. I am a caller, a strangler. I float in the wind like a flag on holidays. I inspire national pride. And that's the whole scene. And then it shifts to the next one. And then I want to just grab one more because I want a section that has savage indian oh there's i just saw another scene from the rope that's so insane like literally like that's what i mean like i could read like literally several different scenes they're just so good um there's this one line where like basically you find out that i guess mary todd lincoln almost in a i can't really tell what's going on and i 
it's something that if you were interested and in, maybe I will look into it too, but like you definitely have to look into it more because it's mostly alluded to in this book, but almost as if she had some kind of Munchausen's by pro- she killed two of her kids or they died, but it's very unclear what the situation was. And that, and, and they're discussing this Savage Indian and Mary Todd Lincoln are discussing this at one point. And he says, he refers to her as, as Gar Woman and Gar is a type of fish. And he goes, Gar Woman eats her last egg. In re- reference to her, like killing her children. And I was like, what? That's what I mean. Like how... The setup, which I'll get into in a minute when I talk about form, is so dope, but it's also like the language itself and the way that she chooses to say things is just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Here's like a, I just, this is just to get like a feel for what it sounds like when they're kind of talking to each other. Mary Todd Lincoln, no matter where he slept, I was Savage Indian the hellcat that abandoned her kittens. Your husband was so busy killing Indians, he didn't notice his wife was killing his sons. Mary Todd Lincoln cries, savage, be gone from my head. Savage Indian, hear me, woman, now and forever, everywhere you are, I am. He holds a flint knife to cut her, but stops. Mary Todd Lincoln, do it, do it, I say. Savage Indian, first, look up. 38 natives hang from the rafters in her room. So yeah, it's just the dialogue is incredible. And even when you do get those moments of description, that's they're just one liners. They're really good. So to get into form for form, I gave this book a nine. As I said, I'm obsessed with the fact that it's set up as a play. Everybody knows I'm a dialogue bitch. I love to read books with heavy dialogue. Um, I do love to read plays. But I think even this is the setup of this is interesting for a play. She has footnotes that give you these little bits of history. Um, she like has these weird moments where she like just has one whole page that is just like a little sentence that like describes a painting, which is really weird. Um, she has these sections where it's the rope. The whole scene is literally just the rope. But the only thing that it says is the rope seethes. And that's the whole scene. And it's like, I actually am not sure. I don't think this has ever, this is a book, you know? And so it's not a play, but it is a play. And so I don't know if this is ever intended to be acted out. Um, I don't think it has been. Um, I might like look into that just to make sure, but I don't think that's the case. And so I'm like, this is meant to be read, right? But I'm like, what does it mean to the rope seeds? What does that what does that mean when we read it? But also what does that mean when someone is acting it out? So I thought that was crazy. Um, and I also think it's just interesting to think about why writers decide to write a certain work a certain way. Savage Conversations could have been a short story. It could have been a novella. It could have been a novel. It could have been an essay. It could have been a nonfiction book just talking about Mary Todd Lincoln and her hallucinations and the mass execution in 1862. Um, But how knew that it was not any of those things? She knew that this story lent itself to a play and she went for it. Um, And like I said, even if it is a play that has not been performed and will never be performed, she made the conscious choice to write this book this way. And it was the right choice. For shelf worthiness, I give this book an eight. Um, I think you can probably read this book a a few times and notice something new. And I think you can certainly, certainly, certainly learn from it. Like take note on that damn dialogue. Yeah, you want this. You just want to have this around. For plot, again, I gave this book an eight. I thought the plot was really great, really original. I think it is interesting because there is there is not necessarily a lot of plot. It is definitely character driven. It's set in scenes of dialogues between only two people, largely all in the same setting, but it works. And I also think that the plot, you know, what it is happening in their conversations is important. Um, and this is kind of what we were talking about earlier, but like, I remember in school, I had a teacher in high school who who said something along the lines of history is written by the victors. 
you are never getting the full story of what happened. You're never getting the true story of what happened. And this is incredibly true, of course, um, in the case of the atrocities that were committed against Indigenous people, um, you know, here, but also across the world, the colonizers and the settlers tried their best to erase culture, erase history, erase entire populations. And then they managed to write their own history of what happened. And that history is a lie. Um, I never learned about the mass execution of Dakota natives in 1862 in school, period let alone that it was the biggest mass execution in United States history. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but I think a lot of indigenous writers feel like it is um, kind of a responsibility to keep their culture, their stories alive through their writing. Um, But I also think, you know, to say this is what life looks like for us today. This is what it looked like then. And we are speaking the truth um, because the truth was not told for a very long time. And so, you know, that's why I think the plot of this book, even though, like I said, it, I think technically you would describe this book as character driven, um, that the plot is incredibly important. And then lastly, for characterization, I gave this book an eight. Obviously, you do not like Mary Todd Lincoln. You were not going to be like, you know, I like this woman. But I think that the character, so I wouldn't say connected to the characters. I wouldn't maybe say under, like we have this in our chart that it says like, I related and or understood them. Like this is such an interesting conversation too, but like, I think you can understand a character and, and understand how that they are awful. Like the author wants you to understand, they want you to understand what's happening with that person. Um, And I think you get, I think how does that? And I think you understand what's happening there with Mary Todd Lincoln and the Savage Indian and the rope. It's such a weird cast to have the rope as a character is so bizarre. But like I said, like everything she's doing here is just working really well. Um, and so, and, and again, too, I think something, something interesting that happens is that the way people decide to write a book can often fall on, did the character change by the end of the book? Which I think is unfair because sometimes the character is not going to change. Um, Mary Todd Lincoln even if she's realizing things about herself and how evil perhaps she was um, and how evil her husband was, she died a bigot and there's nothing that's going to change that. And it would be weird if somebody tried to write a story in which it's kind of like Hamilton, like when they're, you know, Stan, but I'm like, no, these weren't good people. Like they're not good. Um, but I, 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 I think that's something I've noticed a lot, like on book talk, like people being like, oh, like I like this book and this is how I rate it because the character changes. And I'm like, that's so important for some books. But one thing that will forever stick with me, the wisest thing I think our thesis professor ever said was the characters don't have to change by the end of the story, but you do. And that stuck with me and will forever be how I read books, I think, which is all to say. Mary Todd Lincoln does not change by the end of this book. She didn't. She's dead. But after you read this book, you you did. Like you changed, whether it's because you learned something new or or what. But this book is going to that's why I'm like y'all have to read this because that statement about what needs to happen for something to be a good story is true here. Yeah. And make sure you get the, the, the introduction is by Suzanne Power, who is another writer. And she is Dakota because Leanne is Choctaw, but is obviously telling a story, you know, about Dakota natives. And so the, the introduction kind of is really cool and talks about Power talks about how this story how how kind of came to write this story um and it's overall just super freaking interesting and great and it's dedicated for the enduring and courageous spirit of the dakota people 
so yeah, buy it. Those are my thoughts. How interesting. You know, you just do things as a writer and then people point it out and they're like, oh, you did that because of this? And you're like, mm, yeah, even though like you just did it just to do it. Right. right. I feel like there's something really interesting about making that book a play right. since politics is such a show and like such so fake which I think contributes to you know us only learning certain things about history because everything is just so fake and and you know also correct me if I'm wrong because this book came Mm -hmm. out in 2019 what the hell is happening with people writing about Lincoln's okay maybe he's just a character that people are infatuated with, like we talked about. But, like, there's that book that we kind of watched, like, a mini play of it, Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders, which also came out not too long ago. Why are people doing that? That's what I'm saying. I'm like, what is with Abe? What's happening there? What an interesting subgenre of literature, once again. Like, because Lincoln and the Bardo was also horror, or at least the mini play version of it that we watched was horror. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Much to think about. Much to think about, love. Oh, in case you didn't hear it in the beginning, I read The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. So this book was, it came out in 2020, so it's very new. I have been seeing it all over Book Talk, um, but Eliza says that it's not very, not many people are buying it in her store, which makes me sad. Go buy it, because I, I genuinely enjoyed this book, and I, get, I we'll talk about it. You'll see why. So Stephen Graham Jones is a prolific writer. I mean, this man's is, has already published at least, I think it was like at least 20, at least 20 books. And he's not even 50 yet. So it just like blows my mind. He is a member of the Blackfeet Nation. And that's who the main characters in the book, who they also identify as. So since I brought them up, This book is pretty much about four friends who very long ago, they went on a hunting trip and they did some things that were off tradition. Um, They hunted on the elders land that they weren't supposed to be on. And they killed, I think it was nine elk, one of which who was pregnant and this elk kind of comes back and haunts them 10 years later. So I was thinking a lot about that, about this kind of like mythology. I don't even know if that's the right word, but of this elk or kind of folklore about this elk. And it depends on which tribe you identify to. But for the most part, this elk lady, to people who are good to women and children, she's associated with fertility and love. But to those who have harmed women and children, she's vengeful and murderous. And she's almost like a siren or a succubus where she lures men to their death. Because the pregnant elk was harmed, I think that the spirit in this book relates to that uh, vengeful elk spirit. Readability, I gave this book a seven. Um, I wish I had more time to sit with this book. So it only gets a seven because I had such a crazy week and my brain just wasn't in it. It just wasn't in reading. I kept going over the kills or the deaths in this book and kind of reliving those moments because most of the kills are pretty masterfully done. And it's not like your average kill. They're pretty interesting. For language and style, this book got a seven. The cover of this book has a quote from the New York Times on it, which says gritty and gorgeous. And I think that that's the 
perfect way to describe um, Jones's work. His way of piecing the story together with these really beautiful descriptions, but also presented in such like a rugged way is so good. Like, I hate to say the word masculine. I hate to be like, there's something masculine about it because like, what does that even mean? But there's something very rugged and as the quote said, gritty about this book and about his writing. There's nothing flowery about it. And it works really, really well for the book. And I'm gonna read two different parts. The first one now, and then the second one, uh, when I talk about the next category form. Lewis nods, taking that hit and wades into it one more time, starting with how, when he split that young elk open, when he carved into that elk who didn't know when she was dead, what spilled out into the snow were her milk bags. They were light blue, muscular and veiny, the ductwork still attached and ready. She was too young to be pregnant, probably couldn't have carried full term all the way to spring, and it was too early for a calf to be this far along anyways, but still, that's why she was fighting so hard, he knew and still knows. It didn't matter that she was dead. She had to protect her baby. And that baby, that embryo or fetus, that calf, it was still rounded like a bean in there. Its head shape ducked down into its chest like it was going to look up at him from its mother's gore, like it was going to wobble up onto four spindly legs, walk away, grow bigger, but never actually develop. So it ended up being a 700-pound, big-eyed, smooth-skinned fetus, always looking for its dead mother. And so there's, there was something, to me, really beautiful about that description. But, like, again, there was nothing flowery or there's nothing, like, showy about it. And I, I really, really liked that about his writing. Okay, so there actually is some pretty good form in this book, so I gave it a seven. Um, there's a few interesting things happening here. The point of view is mostly third-person limited, and it switches depending on who it's focusing on. For example, the first section, because the book is divided into sections, which then have, I guess, chapters in them. So the first section, which is only 12 pages, focuses on one of the four friends whose name was Ricky. And then when it goes into the second section, it focuses on Lewis and his section. Um, I don't want to say the bulk of the book, but probably a little bit more than half of the book. Uh, so that's a really interesting thing that happens. But so during the third section, there is this moment where it switches to second person and then once it has a little chapter that's second person it goes back to third person but occasionally as the story is going on he'll say like oh and then you were standing there in the dark blah 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 so it, it flashes um second person here and there the you parts are so good that one little chapter of the you part I was like blown away also something to mention is the characters, especially the first two characters that you meet, Ricky and Lewis, are constantly aware of like newspaper headlines. And so there will be a part where Lewis will just be like, and he can already see the newspaper headline in his head, uh, the first Indian man to ever clean up after himself or like something silly like that. So it's almost as if there's a thing happening with identity here where these people are aware that they're living in a modern society, but they are Native Americans and they're aware of how people will frame them, how the media will see them, how their community thinks of them. And this is almost highlighted by the fact that at the end of sections, there will be like a newspaper article. There's kind of this really lovely thing where it's like you know the situation because you've just read the book and been through it and then you read this newspaper article and you see how people looking into the situation sees it and there's something so horrifying about that it's so so good for shelf worthy I give this book an eight I learned a lot from this book I enjoyed sitting with it 
I think it's definitely a book to buy and read. Um, the cover is super cool and it's textured really nicely, which I love texture books. I want this book on my shelf and I think that other people would want to read and have it. So for plot, I gave this a nine. I never knew what was going to happen next. And it's not because this book was random. Everything that happened, it made sense. Like a death will happen and the gore will just hit you so matter of factly. It happens and you're just like, oh, okay. Like that makes sense. And, but there was never like an of course moment, you know? You really are experiencing things in the way of the characters. In this book, there is a part where you become aware of the vengeful spirit and you know about it before other characters know about it. And also because he uses the you perspective, it's almost like whose side am I really on here? Who am I aligning with? The spirit or, or the friends? interesting um there's the whole idea of like women carrying trauma in their bodies and then trauma getting passed down to their kids and whatnot and there's almost something like that idea in here where it's like is my dad's past also my past is is my great grandmother's past also my past So for characters, I gave this a nine. I felt attached to these characters. I felt attached to the four friends in almost like a YA type way. And I guess there is something that people can relate to where it's like, how long does a situation have to pass for me to not owe anything to that situation and to not like need to be punished for it or something? I, I really liked this book and I think everyone should read it. And it's not really, I didn't find it super scary. I found it gory. And, you know, Stephen Graham Jones, they say that he does horror in a literary way. And so there is something, when I, when I personally think of literary, I think of something thought provoking and... I guess, conversation inviting. And this book very much felt like that. It does feel literary. And I do appreciate um, someone doing horror in a literary way, or at least I appreciate having people think of horror in a literary way because I don't think that it gets all the love that it deserves. But that is all I have to say about that. I would like to read it. I think you would like it. It sounds so good. It sounds so very good. Yeah. Why is it that horror is so often looked down on? Like sometimes horror is the best way to tell that story. I'm sure there's many reasons, but I think one of the reasons is that horror um, relies on a lot of tropes, Mm. which I think can see is taking the easy way out in a way Mm -hmm. um but I think this goes back to the conversation of like horror always gets dealt a bad hand we have a lot of men writing in horror and the way they use women doesn't always help Mm -hmm. we need some not that we need better writers but we just need people to acknowledge the writers more right Right. I mean, and it sounds like your book, too, was doing something so interesting with horror. And so that's why I'm so glad it is popping off on book talk. But again, that makes me so sad that people aren't reading, don't seem to be picking it up at the bookstore, because I'm like, y'all, this is something different. Like, pick this up. Because also, like I said, I think he's the only person of color, perhaps on that table, not like that I know. Have you ever read a book and you're like, this book could be considered a classic Yeah. in like a certain amount of years time if people would just give it a chance? Right. And if people actually read this book, right. this book would be a horror classic. And you feel, you feel that way about that book? Yes. Yeah. 
I'm going to go buy that book with my discount, though. <laughs> yes, buy the book. I'm going to also buy your book, especially because it's a quick read. That sounds good right now. Next week, for all you guys listening out there, we're going to be celebrating another birthday. Woo! And it's going to be the birth of Mr. Neil Gaiman. Way! Woohoo! Happy birthday, Neil! Happiest birthday. I do not know what I'll be reading yet. I'm stuck between two books. So I'm stuck between American Gods and Neverwhere. And my book is Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is yet a third genre. I'll I'll get my stuff together and figure it out by next week. I can do that. She'll get there. She'll she'll arrive at some point. Everyone has to get their Native American books. Yep. And have, I hope everyone had a great Halloween, right? Yes. Happy late Halloween. Happy late Halloween. And I think that's all from us. That's it, besties. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Bye. That complex horror.